Acts 18, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Kevin Butcher. We're in the book of Acts, and um, Acts chapter 18, actually, and uh, as you're getting that passage together on your phone, or for those of you who are still old school, and bring a copy of the text, power to you old school folks. Um, Used to be when you'd say, can you turn to, you'd hear the pages rustling, and now it's like crickets, uh, because you're doing it silently on your phone. Um, Acts, as you know, is the story of the early church sharing the message of Jesus in, in, in the Roman Empire, the broken world of, of the ancient Near East. And I think you know this, but a guy like Paul, that we're going to be looking at his life again today as he enters this place called Corinth, um, he, wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't going into Corinth to share Jesus because he felt like he should share Jesus or because he felt like he ought to share Jesus. And I can promise you, um, even though he commanded the Old Testament scriptures well, and he was a very smart guy, so he could reason. The text will say today he reasoned with folk in the synagogue. But that, he wasn't in there to argue theological facts. He shared Jesus because Jesus had literally changed his life. I don't know who preached Acts 9 here back in the day, but um, Paul was a dead man walking filled with anger and, and hopelessness inside. He was a murderer. And Jesus of Nazareth changed his life and literally brought life to this uh, man who was dead. And that, that's why um, Paul shared Jesus the way he did throughout the book of Acts. And, and just because Acts is supposed to talk to us about our journey here, because we don't live in the Roman Empire, but we live where we live today, and the world is still broken, is it not? It's broken. It's broken. And folk are like looking for, where's life? Where, where is there something that makes sense to the, to the pain that I experience? Where is, where is possibly, where is there some healing? And so we are, like that generation, we are the spokespersons, not for a series of theological facts. We're not here to debate the proponents of Islam or the proponents of Judaism. We're not sharing Jesus because we should or because we ought. If you feel today like, well, I should share, just stop. Ask God to give you a life-changing encounter with his son, Jesus. Because I'm telling you, I'll just say it this way. You know, I was taught when I was a kid that you had to schedule times to go evangelize. I was taught... You go out on Sunday nights and you go share. And I'm like, how do you schedule a time to share a life-changing relationship? I was a dead man walking. I can tell you this this morning. I'm here today not because this is what I do or because I went to seminary, but because I love to talk about my Jesus because he literally has rescued me from the dead. And so I, I think this book is reminding us that... Um, there's no shoulds or oughts when it comes to sharing the name of Jesus. It's we believe he is the answer to the brokenness in our world. Not Christianity, but Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected Jesus. And we believe he's the answer to the brokenness in our world because we have experienced him being the answer to our brokenness. So... That's why they shared. The problem is they shared with a lot of opposition. 
Um, and so we, we look at the book of Acts and see how their world in some ways doesn't parallel ours, but in many ways it does. And today, you know, we've got Inglewood, we've got the East Coast here, but um, back then you had cities like Corinth, and you'll see this on, the, on your screen, I think. Um, just so you know what we're going to be reading about, there we go. Um, Corinth was uh, the capital city and the most important city and the largest city in Achaia, which is basically modern Greece. And uh, you'll see a picture here of the ruins uh, of Corinth today, I believe you will. Yeah, there they are. Um, it was an incredibly cosmopolitan city, huge populations of Jews, Greeks, and Romans. It was a trade route. You had to, going from east to west, north to south, you almost had to go through Corinth. There were two major ports, as you saw on that map. They had temples to many of the Greco-Roman gods, including Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, and Poseidon, who was the god of uh, the sea. They had the largest marketplace in the ancient world, of any city in the ancient world, and they were known for, they had a reputation for their immorality. So back then, if you were called a Corinthian, it was not a good thing. So with that background in mind, I don't know if you do this here, I forget, but can you stand with me and let's read this text together and then we'll try to make some sense out of it in about 25 minutes. So this is what Luke says, Acts 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. That was about a 55-mile journey. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And that, by the way, is a historical marker in the book of Acts. Uh, Suetonius, the Roman historian, documents that this happened under Claudius's reign. He, we're not exactly sure why, but he deported Jews um, out of the city of Rome. And so Paul came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, by occupation, they were tent makers, or you might translate the Greek word, um, leather workers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, he had left them behind um, in Berea, Paul was compelled by the Spirit uh, to basically stop uh, selling tents, making tents, and just specifically going into the synagogue day after day, especially on Sabbath, and testifying to the Jewish community that Jesus is Messiah. He was the promised Messiah. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, basically it means they weren't blaspheming God as much as they were basically saying to Paul that he was a loser. And so when, when, when they did that over and over and over, he shook his garments and said to them, that was a symbolic action to say, your blood be now upon your own heads. I'm clean from now on. I will go to the non-Jewish community. I'm going to go to the Gentiles because you have rejected your Messiah. So he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named uh, Titius Justus, one who worshiped God. He was a, a, a Gentile convert to the Jewish faith. I don't think he was quite yet a believer in Jesus whose house happened to be right next door to the synagogue. So he wasn't in the synagogue, they just went next door. How convenient. Then Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor of the synagogue, believed on the Lord Jesus. Amazing. With all of his household, and then, of course, many of the Corinthians. There was like literally revival. Hearing the good news about Jesus, believed and were baptized. This is the planting of the Corinthian church. When you read First and Second Corinthians, this is the moment when that church was planted. Now, dig this, because we're going to focus on this in just a moment. The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Don't be afraid, son. 
don't be afraid. But speak, speak my name and don't keep silent because I am with you. What sweet words to hear any day of our life, let alone with the intensity of the situation Paul was facing. And no one, because I'm with you, will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. There was going to be some stuff going down, but Jesus wanted Paul to know that he had his arms around him and nothing was going to happen that would take him away from sharing his name. So finally, he continued there about 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio, whose brother, by the way, is the famous Roman philosopher Seneca, when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up like they had been all along, Thessalonica, etc., rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, the Bema, which was in Roman cities. Uh, it was the place where you could, well, you basically could have trial openly uh, in, the, in the Agora, in the marketplace. And, um, let's see, I've got to find my place again. Oh, uh, the Jews said... Gallio, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to our Jewish law. Had nothing to do with Roman law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Paul's like, okay, here we go. A miracle happened. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crime, so Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But it's simply a question of words and names and your own law. So take care of your own business. For I don't want to be a judge of such matters. I've got better things to do with my time. And so he drove them from the judgment seat. Then case of severe first century anti-Semitism. The Greeks that were so angry at the Jewish community for bringing this up and turning Gallio kind of sour against the community. All the Greeks took Sothenes who replaced Crispus when Crispus became a Christian. They took Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio turned a blind eye, took no notice of these things. Wow, what a story. You may be seated. So here's what we want to know. First of all, when Paul arrived in Corinth, he was emotionally beaten up, discouraged, and afraid. He was a mess. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which I think you'll see here on, the, on your screen, there, there we go. He even says in his first letter to the Corinthians that he wrote from Ephesus just a couple of years later, he says, when I came to you, I came in weakness, in fear, and in much tra trembling. Wouldn't that be the same for us if we had gone through what Paul had just gone through in Thessalonica? The Jewish community had come against him. They formed a mob. They attacked him. He had to escape. He went down to Berea. They followed him down there. He barely escaped with his life. He left Paul and Silas behind because he had to get on a boat and get out of Dodge. And then he went to Athens, and he did a good job reasoning with the philosophers at Mars Hill, um, where the philosophers met to talk, you know, philosophy and religion, but they called him a babbler. They mocked the resurrection. And yes, some people came to Christ in his journeys, but I'm telling you, by the time he got to Corinth, when he walked into Corinth, it'd be like, you know, being so discouraged and walking into Times Square or so discouraged and walking into the brothel section of Amsterdam. You just, he, he walked in, it's like walking into hell. And yes, he wanted to share Jesus as Messiah because Jesus had changed his life. He was sharing his one great love, but his life was a wreck. And quite frankly, he was discouraged and he was very afraid. Are you surprised? This is Paul the Apostle, but this is Paul the Apostle, human being just like us. Listen, if, if we, we won't share at all, quite frankly, we really won't share unless he has transformed our lives. 
unless we're falling in love, we're sharing our great love, we, we probably won't share. We'll feel guilty about it, but we're not going to do it because there's just, there's too much coming against us out there that if, if this is not about sharing our one great love, we probably aren't going to share. But if we do share, the world is so broken and we're sharing in the context of the cosmos where there's an enemy that says, you will have one more of these human beings over my dead body. So there's gonna be pushback when we share. One way or another, there's gonna be pushback. So it's not unusual, whether it's Paul or whether it's us, in our lives to feel beat up and discouraged and afraid for many, many different reasons because that's one of the ways the enemy locks us down. Because of the way I'm wired, um, again, I mentioned that I'm an Enneagram 8. I'm not naturally afraid or discouraged. Um, but I got to tell you, uh, we have other issues, by the way. The 8 on the Enneagram has many other issues. Fear is just not one of them. But as I've walked with uh, Jesus over the years, uh, there have been many, many times when I have been very discouraged and very afraid. I can remember flying into Entebbe, um, Uganda, shortly after Idi Amin was deposed back in the day. And I remember it was 10 o'clock at night. We get out of that airplane and walked across the tarmac to the, the little building there um, where we would enter through customs into Uganda. And all I remember was thinking, it is so dark with no electricity or shared electricity. And I remember thinking, man, this is, where, where am I? Where have I come? Same thing happened one time on, on a train going from Hungary to, um, from Austria to Hungary and then into Romania shortly after Ceausescu was assassinated. Communism fell. And man, we, that night, m myself and my partners, we were the only English speakers on that, on that train. We had a, quite a few Romanian folks in that car and we were just packed in like sardines and the soldiers, the Romanian soldiers, the former communist soldiers came in and took our passports and they were gone a long, long time. And I thought, man, this is a Humphrey Bogart movie, man. We're going down. This is a spy movie. They're gonna be, this is going to be Hollywood someday. They're going to talk about us. And I remember being afraid. I remember being so discouraged at the one church that we were at, the, the church that grew quite big. And the, the wealthy community, um, which was part of who we ministered to. And this is nothing against folk that have money. God bless us if God has blessed us like that. But sometimes it can do strange things with our minds. And I would be so discouraged because some of these folks had a lot of power in culture. And so I would try to help them grow spiritually, but there'd be so much pushback because they weren't used to having people tell them anything. And so I remember being so discouraged in that community. And then when I eventually got fired in that community over racial issues, so deeply, deeply discouraged. And then... There's been our battle with cancer with my wife, and I'm just saying, I'm not naturally wired to be afraid, discouraged, overwhelmed, but I gotta tell you, in my walk with Jesus over the years, um, I've experienced what Paul experienced many, many, many times. And if you are committed to sharing your one great love, I can promise you the enemy is not going to leave you alone. It will not be, don't feel shame, like, oh, if I was really a good Christian, if I was really trusting the Lord and his promises, no. It's, you don't want to stay there. And we're going to see how God meets us there. But there, there's no shame in saying, I, Lord, I'm trying, but this is coming at me. And this is coming at me. I want to, I'm in love with you. I want to share, but I, I'm just locked down right now. That is, 
I think, a standard way that we can tend to feel when we're trying to share Jesus with our broken world. Paul did, and I think we do as well. But notice what happens in that discouragement. God meets Paul in his weakness and fear with his powerful, loving presence. This is number two. I think sometimes we think in our discouragement and our fear, we think if God will just take away this circumstance, if God will just deliver me from this place, if he'll just take that person that's persecuting me and do something with them, or this illness, or this whatever is causing me to be afraid, if you'll just take it. Um, but that's not how spiritual war always works. Sometimes he might, we can always ask, many times he does not. But you know what he always does? He comes to be with us. He loves us and he may not deliver us out of that pain any more than the father delivered his own son out of the pain of the cross but he will come to be with us and whisper in our ear with his arm around us, I love you and I'm here, let's do this together. What do we really need in the midst of the pain and the discouragement? We think we need out, but what we really need is to hear his voice, I love you son, I love you daughter, and in the midst of your pain, I am here. And I promised I would never leave you and I would never forsake you and I'm not gonna break that promise now. So there are three ways, we gotta go through these very quickly, three ways that he comes and shows Paul that he loves him and he's with him in this context. The first one, you'll see it on the screen, is through community. In community, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. When Paul gets to Corinth, he's all alone. He had to leave Paul in, or Timothy and Silas behind and so what happens in 18.2, this is so uh, amazing. The way Luke puts this in the Greek text, he says, the New King James translates this quite well. Sometimes the New King James doesn't, but this time I think it does. He says, Paul, when he got to Corinth, almost immediately found a certain Jew named Aquila with his wife Priscilla. I don't want to get into the technicalities of that phrase, but what he's basically saying, Luke is saying when he wrote this, it was no accident. He found a certain Jew. He didn't just stumble into the Jewish community and happen to say, what are the chances of finding someone like you that makes sense just like me? He was saying, God was saying, I know you're beat up, Paul, but I've got you. And so he gets off the boat, he looks at hell, and he goes, how am I gonna share the answer to the world's problems right now? I'm so stuck. And he says, I'll tell you how, because I'm gonna be with you, and the first thing I'm gonna do is show you how I'm going to be with you through bringing you somebody that I live in who's gonna represent me in your presence. And that would be Priscilla, and that would be Aquila. And then of course, verse five, Silas and Timothy come, and then he connects with Justice, who eventually I think probably becomes a believer, and then Crispus comes to Christ, and then many Corinthian believers believe, and Corinthian non-believers believe, and all of a sudden he's got a community around him. And he feels the strength of that community. Listen, you may be strong, Paul was strong, but you cannot do it alone. I don't mean to get up in your business, but if you come to Metro and you sit, and you know, this is the way we are in the Western church, every place we go, I mean, this is the way it is. Unless you're in a house church, you can face each other and share, but we basically sit and look at the back of each other's heads. And this church works harder than many to really connect us, but at some point, 
We've got to go beneath the surface. If we want to be strong in sharing the good news with our broken community, I mean, we talk about it every Sunday. We talk about how it's broken, and we have the answer. Ansi talked about it this morning. The worship team led us in words that talked about his love will conquer all. But we're it. The cavalry ain't coming. We are it. We are his spokespersons. We are the ones to say the name. Not to try to convince somebody to believe all the things we believe, but we're the ones to say the name because he's our great love. He's the one who has touched us. But we won't do it alone. We will not do it unless we have intimate connection with brothers and sisters who in the moment of our discouragement, our fear, our weariness, our trembling, will be there and be Jesus to us. Didn't Jesus say himself when he sent out the disciples in John 14, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will be with you. And I will be in you. One of the ways he does that is through his body. There's a reason why this morning we're called the body of Christ. Because we meet each other. When we meet each other with authenticity, sharing this is where I really am. Jesus meets us there too. I mentioned a moment ago that I, that I got uh, let go of a church. I probably use that illustration wherever I go. And I probably have used it here before. So forgive me if I keep going back to that benchmark. But that was a low point in my, in my journey. And there were moments when I did not know if, if I wanted to go on. Um, I can remember one night when my, my best friend, my wife, literally, I was crying so hard I couldn't stop and she just held me because I felt like such an evil man to have gotten fired in this context. It just, I, if you've ever felt that kind of shame, you know what I'm talking about. No one can reason with you. There's just, there's just pain. And right... He, he was my great love, but in that pain, I didn't want to share with anybody. I just wanted to sit in my grief. And one of my closest friends, I have three brothers who have walked with me for 40 years. He didn't ask me if he could come. He lives in Dallas, Texas, pastored there for 40 years. He, um, he got on an airplane, and one, one part of that time when I was grieving, he just showed up. I opened the door, and there he is from Dallas, a thousand miles away. Immediately, of course, started to cry. We embraced, and Bill wasn't really a hugger, but we embraced. <laughs> a couple days later in that week, he went with me to an elder meeting where we were trying to work out all of our differences. He sat there with me with his arm around my shoulder. He was, he was Jesus to me. When I couldn't love myself, couldn't find the face of God, this man embodied Jesus. He put his arm around me and advocated for me with the elders. And then I can remember one time, again, another time when I just broke down and was crying so loud I woke him up. He came down, and again, this guy's not a huggy guy, but I remember him reaching from around the back of me and just holding on to me until somehow my spirit got calm and I was able to stop. This is what I want to tell you. I would not be here today sharing the name of my love, my Jesus, without the embodiment of that love in my friend Bill Brewer, a piece of the community of Jesus when I was at one of my lowest points. We will not, could it be that one of the reasons we struggle today to share that love of our lives is because we are not connected that way and those who would bring his healing to us so that we could be free, out from under that pain and that fear to share his name with our broken world. This is the second way he comes and this is the one that really rocked me in the last couple of weeks as I studied this text. He might come, he might come 
very, very, very personally. So dig this now. One night while he was in Corinth, feeling all this pain, feeling all this brokenness, Jesus came to him in a night vision. This happened several times in the book of Acts. What is happening here? Paul knew the Old Testament, okay? He knew the Bible verses. He knew the Psalms. He'd met Jesus for heaven's sakes. But he needed something more than Bible verses. In this particular situation, the intensity of the conflict that was shutting down his ability to share the name, he needed more than Bible verses. And so Jesus said, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to break through the veil, and I'm going to give you a personal touch. We've talked about this before. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, didn't go out there to Mars. He just went here. And so this is a moment when, from glory, he reached through and touched Paul with this vision. He says three things. Don't be afraid. Speak the name, for I am with you. Not from afar. I am right here. And Paul needed to hear that, not from the psalmist. He needed to hear it from his voice. I don't think God breaks through like this every day. But if we're available, I believe with all of my heart that those kinds of personal touches will come at just the right time, usually in proportion to the intensity of the battle around us that we're facing. Sometimes it will be very drastic. To continue the illustration, since I'm already down that road, after I got fired, wanted to quit ministry, I was done. I was gonna sell. The thing I thought I could do is be a salesperson, although the thought of it just gagged me, but I thought, <laughs> I have a decent personality, I thought Sears might be able to use me, could I sell appliances, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking about selling shoes and I thought, no, I'm not gonna be messing with people's feet, so um, I'm gonna sell appliances. So discouraged, thought, really thought I was disqualified because I'd gotten fired, even though there was a bunch of injustice in that. There, you just feel like you're, you're scorned, you're damaged goods. Somebody allowed me to go out to their, um, their condo out in Beaver Creek, I think it was. And one day I thought, well, Lord, I know this is just symbolic. These are mountains and you're not closer to me because I go to the mountains. But I just thought, I'm going to take a hike. I'm going to go up to the mountains and pray in that, in that grandeur. So I took a little lunch, put it in the back, a, a little bit of a... I think it was actually a fanny pack. That's so terrible. But I did, I think I literally wore one once that day. I bet you I looked so cool walking up that mountain in my fanny pack. But anyway, I get up to this mountain lake. I get out on this rock, you know, and I'm trying to get my lunch around. And I fall into the lake. And mountain lakes, they are cold. And I was, I know this sounds like I'm just a big baby, but I was like, fine. I mean, I'm splashing at that water. It wasn't so deep. I was going to drown. I, I hit the bottom and I grabbed my lunch. It was floating away. And I was like, fine. I come up here to talk to you. And what do you do? You push me in the lake. <laughs> or at least you don't offer a hand. You just giggle. Thank you, Lord. And so I, I know, please don't judge me for this. I was in a bad space. So I start walking down that mountain. And I'm just walking down, and I mean, I'm like, like, look at the beauty. I'm like, I'm going back to the cottage. Like, that's how I was, just pouting, having a temper tantrum. 
You can tell me I'm schizophrenic. You can tell me this wasn't God. But I mean something stopped me. This is what I heard as close as I've ever had to hearing a voice. Go lower, son, and I will be with you there. It stopped me to the point that I looked around. I, w- I literally was frightened because it was such an abrupt thing. And I'm not prone to visions and voices. Am I, Carla? I don't think I am, am I? Okay. Nobody will tell me that that day God didn't see. I know you've gone low, son, but you have no See, what you have to understand is my son went low. This is how he conquered the world. He went low. So begin to heal from why it happened. What your part was, you and I will deal with. What their part was, I will deal with them. But the fact is, you are here, and here's what I want you to know. I'm with you here. And for 19 years now, that has been a mantra. Whenever I get in some kind of, remember what I told you, son. Go lower, and I will be with you there. I believe if we're available to that, if we're kind of doing our own thing, say, man, I can share Christ, man, I can handle this problem, I can handle this pain, I'm doing my thing, maybe we'll miss it. Maybe we'll miss the circumstance that God wants to say, see, I'm here, I'm right here. Or that word from a friend, I'm right here. Because sometimes it's not always bold like that. Sometimes it could be a bit more subtle, although I don't think he ever plays games. It can be a bit more subtle. So one night, Carl and I had an argument. Imagine that. Um, we had an argument, even after 40-some years of marriage. I called my, one of my other best friends, Ed, in California, 9 o'clock, our, or 12 o'clock um, our time, 9 o'clock their time. I said, Ed, and he let me rant. And I was like, if Carla would only see this, and if she would only know that, and if she could only understand, and I'm this, and she needs to do that. And he listened. And then when I ran out of breath, he said, can I say something with you, bro, to you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, Kev, she's tired. She's just been through a bout with cancer. She's just worn out. And all the anger left. All the fear and trembling left. It was like Ed's voice was the voice of Jesus that spoke peace to my heart. As you might imagine, I went in there, opened the door, and I think I said a prayer over her. And the next morning, the first words out of my mouth, as I remember it, were, my friend Ed spoke God's word to me. I was wrong. You were right. Please, please forgive me. We can't demand that he breaks through, but we can pray for it. And can I tell you, because of the intensity that I personally live with, I pray every day. Lord, today, I'm in your word. I want more. If you just leave me with this word, I will trust this word. This word is true, but I need more today. And I pray for others. One of our covenant pastor friends had a cancer diagnosis the other day. When I called her on the phone, I said, could I pray with you? And she said, yes. And I said, Father, this sister, pastor, daughter of yours knows the word of God. Today, I'm praying that you speak even more clearly and more personally that you are with her and that you love her so that she can go through this valley of the shadows and come out the other side speaking your name. What would it be like if we began to expect to hear the Lord personally? Stop trusting in our own devices to navigate all the pain and the fear and the trembling and believe that maybe, maybe he will break through at just the right time. I know many of us wonder about this theologically, don't we? 
Didn't Jesus say also, though, in John 14, if you love me, I will manifest myself to you. The word means to display in very clear ways. I've really never heard that, that passage preached on over the years. But what if it could mean exactly what Paul experienced? What if that promise to the disciples was a promise also to us at the right time and the right way as we're in love with him and want to share? The enemy's trying to take us out. What if we expected that at just the moment we need it, he will manifest himself to us? And I think some of us probably are saying, why would he do that for me, man? I'm such a screw up. Nobody's ever been there for me like that. Why would he be there for me like that? My brothers and sisters, it's because you're his son. You're his daughter. If my daughter today, if I had my phone on and one of my daughters, two in Denver and one in Philadelphia called me, I would leave here immediately if they needed me and crawl bare need on broken shards of glass to get to them because they're my daughters. The enemy has tried to speak shame to you. Why should I expect this from God? But I want to speak to you today the, the truth that he loves you. He loves you where you are right now in your pain and your brokenness. He loves you. In fact, I believe he is right here with you. What if you began to believe that he is here, that he loves you, and at the right time, he will break through and encourage you to break through that brokenness so that you can continue to share his name? And then finally, don't have time to really unpack this, there's a miracle. There's an absolute miracle because you see that this thing is going down in front of the Bama seat, and Paul, I mean, he could have literally been killed. He could have had judgment brought against him and been killed under Roman law. And you notice that Paul, I love this, in verse 14, Paul, because he's always Paul, he's a talker. It says he's getting ready to open his mouth. And he's like, Gallio's like listening and the Jews are just saying Paul's a loser and he's breaking law and he, and he really doesn't want to follow Caesar. He's got a new king and he's watching Gallio and Paul's like. And just at the time when he's ready to open his mouth, Gallio speaks and God works a miracle. Gallio says, I'm not listening. You say, is that really a miracle? I know another um, Roman emissary in Palestine who heard the cry of the Jews and put Jesus on the cross, his name was Pilate. For Gallio to say, I'm not listening, I'm taking it as a bona fide miracle. Listen, we don't have to be afraid. If God wants us to continue to stay on this planet in the context we're in, we don't have to fear our Rome. We don't have to feel the authorities in Englewood. We don't have to fear, fear a, 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 an in-law or a person that doesn't seem to love us and is trying to crush us because if need be, our Jesus will come close to us and even do something miraculous to continue to enable us to share the name. Why? Because he knows that his name is the only answer to the brokenness in our world. So I'm going to leave you um, with an illustration. And Helen, I don't know if you can follow these slides very well, but um, let me see. I'll go down here. 
I want to show you a picture of my grandson, Mac. And I, I don't know if I've ever shown these slides to you or not. I don't think so. I might have shown them to maybe the singles uh, at the retreat or something. But this is my grandson, Mac, uh, maybe a year and a half ago. And he's all ready to go. He's all duded up like a Boy Scout, you know, because we're going to go on a little walk and we're going to go down to this, I don't know, it was like a fair, uh, a, a fair in the neighborhood where they had horses and animals and exhibits. So the next slot, if you don't, shot, if you don't mind. Okay, so if you can't, I hope you can see this, that's a rattlesnake or some kind of a poisonous snake that that guy's holding. I think it was poisonous. Maybe it's just a snake, who cares? It's a snake, all right? And there's Mac with his little um, baseball cap and his hoodie. He's just looking at a safe distance. Now, what, as we walk toward that snake, <laughs> my grandson kept saying, Papa, I don't, I'm not going to touch that snake. And I'd say, it's okay, son. You don't have to touch that snake. And we'd take two more steps. He'd go, Papa, I'm not touching that snake. And I said, it's okay, son. Snakes are scary. You don't have to touch that snake. He said it another time. I'm not touching that snake. I said, that's fine. So we're here. We're here right then. After all of those caveats, he's not touching this snake. He's not going to do it. Notice in the next shot. I said, what would it be like, son, if Papa's hand, if you just touch Papa's hand, because I'm, because I love you and I'm with you. What would it be like if you touched my hand and we touched the snake together? Now, whoever that other person's hand is, I want them out. I don't know what their hand is. They ruin a perfectly good illustration. If any of you know how, knows how to Photoshop that, I need that out. <laughs> it's like, get out of there, man. Anyway, notice how Mac, with his hand, he knows his papa is with him and loves him. Are you, are you feeling this? Next slide. Mac touches the snake on his own because he knows his papa is right there. And his papa loves him with all of his heart. Would you bow with me, please? My father, first, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who feel so much guilt and shame about, I should share Jesus, I should, I should. Would you help them to know, Father? Would you please, Father, would you please help my brothers and sisters who are feeling shame and guilt about not sharing Jesus to realize that's not your voice. You are not shaming them and guilting them about not sharing your son's name. Would you take that off of their shoulders, Lord? Just take it off their shoulders. In the name of Christ, take it off their shoulders, Abba. And then would you help them to see your loving father face, that you just love them You've always loved them since the foundation of the world. You sent your precious beloved son out of love to crush the powers of darkness on the cross, to come back from the grave, overcoming death through that love just because you loved this daughter, this son that wouldn't even be born until 2,000 years later. Would you speak that love right now, Father? Speak your love. Speak it to us beyond all the childhood wounds, beyond all the problems in our marriages, beyond years of shame, speak your love right now, Father. Begin a long-term encounter 
that will transform us so that there's no more guilt anymore. It's just I want to share him because he has brought life into my death. He's brought freedom into my pain. He's my healer. He's my deliverer. He's my one great love. And then, Father, for those of us who we know, we know you as that love, but we're just beat up today, man. We're just beat up. We, in fact, we've been feeling beat up for a long time. So Corinth looks daunting to us. It overwhelms us. The workplace overwhelms us. Family issues are overwhelming us. Depression is overwhelming us. Father, would you speak to us this morning? I'm with you. I love you. Don't be afraid. I've got my arm around you. Let's do this together. I'll give you whatever you need to share my name because I'm your one great love. Father, we, we thank you for loving us like that. Help us to engage your love so that we can share that love with this broken, broken community. In Jesus' name.